encouraged. We are in the middle of a series. Actually, we're getting quite close to the end of a series on the Beatitudes. And as I mentioned right at the beginning of the series, the Beatitudes are some of Jesus's most challenging teaching. C.S. Lewis compared them to being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer. Jesus's words were radical to the disciples, but they are just as radical to us today. N.T. Wright, as I quoted again at the beginning of our series, said, these blessings are not simply about how to behave so God will do something nice to you. They are the way in which Jesus wants to rule the world. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemakers. Sinclair Ferguson said that the Beatitudes don't tell us what we should be. Rather, they describe what the power of God's kingdom makes us. So let's begin this morning by reminding ourselves that what that power makes us as we partner with Jesus together. Let's read the Beatitudes together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but when I read those Beatitudes and really take them in, they generate a significant response inside me as I realize what do these actually mean in my life and in my behavior? Because this is who Jesus says I am. This is who he has made me. This is who he has made us. And therefore, this is his expectation of what my life must become. Let's pray. Help us this morning, God, as we go through your word, as we enjoy it together, as we encounter it, that we might be changed by it. Lord, we open ourselves up to your Holy Spirit and we say, speak to us this morning. Speak into our lives through your word, Lord, and change us. Let us be more like you, Jesus. Oh God, we just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Today, I want to focus on a beatitude that I find particularly challenging, yet unbelievably inspiring at the same time. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I spent a good part of my early childhood in Ireland. My mom was born in, and she grew up in Londonderry, which is right on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Mom was one of nine children, so we had plenty of uncles, aunts, and cousins to visit, to go to Ireland and visit. And in the spring of 1971, when I was seven, my father had to go and work in the U.S. over here in Oregon for a number of months. So my brother and I, with my mom, packed up from our home in Guernsey, and we moved to live for a few months with our extended family in Ireland. 
My favorite cousin was Billy. Billy had just turned 18 and he was cool. Mostly because he was prepared to spend time with his seven-year-old cousin. Billy had visited us in Guernsey and now living in Ireland, my brother and I got to spend lots of time with him on his own turf. And it was also pretty awesome because he was training to become a police officer. And I remember hanging out with him on a building site, a half-built building site, playing cops and robbers in and out of the homes. Fortunately, mom never found out what we were doing and we sort of ignored those big signs saying, keep out, danger, and all of those kind of things. We had fun. We had great, great fun together. On March 15th, 1972... Billy died as a result of a gunshot wound following an ambush on him by the IRA. Nine months later, on January 14th, 1973, Billy's sister's husband, Mervyn, was killed in an IRA car bomb in Londonderry's main square, right by where we used to hang out on that building site. As you can imagine, our family was devastated. As an eight-year-old, it was impossibly difficult to understand why this had happened to my cousins. These senseless murders and the more than three and a half thousand others that occurred during this time defined much of my family life for many years at home. But not just for us, for so many other families as well. Billy and Mervyn were murdered during a conflict in the UK known as the Troubles. And this was a difficult and tense 30-year conflict between unionists who wanted to remain part of the UK and nationalists who wanted to see the north and south of Ireland united into a united Ireland. The conflict was predominantly political, but it was fueled by historical events between Ireland and England. And it also had a sectarian dimension, which was made a lot of by the media at the time, with nationalists identifying as Catholics and unionists as Protestants. Although it must be said that the conflict was mostly about politics and power rather than religious belief. The troubles were eventually brought to an uneasy end through a peace process involving reform of the police the demilitarization by the paramilitary organizations and the signing of the Belfast Agreement on Good Friday 1999, whereby all sides agreed to settle the conflict by devolving and sharing power locally. The Beatitudes have a lot to say at so many levels when it comes to the reaction of people to the Troubles, whether that's the mourning of devastated families all over the province Mercy for the perpetrators of the violence, justice for the victims, or just how to make peace in such a hate-filled environment, not least for us in our own family. We were really impacted by our personal tragedy. I can remember many heated and emotional arguments at home, especially when it came to making peace with the paramilitaries who had killed Billy and Mervyn. To our family, how could we see them as anything other than brutal murderers? The personal cost of making peace in families across Northern Ireland was brutally high. 
but yet they achieved it. While the Belfast Agreement defined the public and political face of the peace, the actual peace was won by the people themselves. Real people who in the midst of unbelievable personal tragedy chose to make peace rather than perpetuate hate. And I'd like to just tell you a couple of their stories this morning. Among the most effective of Northern Ireland's peacemakers were people who belonged to a community called Cory Mila. Each year, thousands visited their retreat where Catholics and Protestants lived together trying to make Christ's philosophy of love a reality. When a neighborhood blew up, whether unionist or loyalist, Cory Mila helpers would go in to work with the young people. Alistair Kilgore, one of the program directors, explained... We had to go in. If we tried to bus kids out, the paramilitaries would blow up the bus. They ran workshops for the kids, encouraging each side to tell their stories. They nurtured friendships between kids who lived on the same street, but had never spoken to each other. On the afternoon of July 24th, a 16-year-old Catholic schoolboy was hitchhiking home. A car filled with unionists gave him a ride. He was never seen alive again. They tortured and killed James Morgan, throwing his body in a waste pit that held animal carcasses. The local milkman was arrested for the killing. James's death came just two months before the official priest process reached a critical stage and would normally have set off retaliatory rage in the community. However, the people of the town were so anguished by the horror of their own community's behavior, they began tearing down the symbols of division in their town and stood together on the streets against paramilitaries on both sides. Father Alec Reed, a Catholic priest, knelt in the dirt to breathe life into a Protestant soldier who had been dumped, stripped, beaten, and dying. He rose with his lips stained in the soldier's blood. Reed went on to become one of the leading voices in the peace talks. Across the town from Reed was unionist Gordon Wilson, who held his daughter's, his only daughter's hand as she died under a wall, collapsed by an IRA bomb. Wilson joined with Reed to work tirelessly to bring Northern Ireland's factions together. The politicians may have made the headlines, but it was really the Catholic and Protestant families from Coromelia, people like Alec Reed and Gordon Wilson, who made the peace in Northern Ireland. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is so elusive in our world. I've told you a story of conflict that defined much of my childhood. But if this was only an isolated example, but unfortunately, as we all know, it isn't. We don't have to look very far to find lives ravaged by conflict because our whole world is fallen. And it's not just in the extremes of war that conflict exists. Conflict can be found anywhere that human beings with different views and beliefs have to work together. In our nations, in our cities, in our communities, in our colleges, in our workplace, and even in our homes. In his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sand defines conflict as a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. That's a pretty innocuous statement. 
Conflict is not just about war. Conflict can arise over differences in taste, like the color of the paint in the bathroom, or our new projector images at the back of the stage. Very controversial. They can provoke strong feelings. But then things like politics. How strongly do we argue and do we polarize over those kinds of things? And unfortunately, even within the church, theological positions drive unbelievable conflict between different individuals. Now, some conflict isn't bad. And conflict doesn't necessarily undermine peace. Differences between us are natural. God made each one of us unique. He created a wonderfully diverse world. We each bring a different perspective to life. And handled right, we all end up richer as a result of the diversity that God created us with. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks about the church itself being made up of many different parts, each with different functions, who've been placed together by God himself, just as he wanted them to be. So handled properly... Our different opinions, convictions, and desires enrich our communion together. They promote helpful change, and they generally make life better. But most conflict isn't beneficial. Most disagreements come out of wrong attitudes and behaviors. We live in a broken world, and the results of the fall have infiltrated every part of it. Experiences like my personal childhood experience, unfortunately, continue to damage and bring injustice to lives all over the world. Sometimes it is easy just to despair and wonder, will this ever be better? Human conflict never seems to end, whether it's conflicts within marriage or within our community or on the borders of our nation. The devastation is all around us. Sand believes that there are three basic ways that we respond to conflict. Faking peace, breaking peace, and making peace. He describes these approaches as escape, attack, and peacemaking. Peace faking is what we do when we try and avoid conflict rather than resolving it. This mostly comes from our natural brain response to escape the pain of conflict regardless of the cost. And we generally fake peace in one of two ways. First, we pretend the conflict doesn't exist. We basically deny that there is an issue to be resolved at all. We might ignore it or simply refuse to act on it. And this can lead us to doing some really crazy things. We have some friends that used to travel about three hours um, to their respective families at Christmas time. Both families demanded that they spend Christmas with them. So rather than dealing with the conflict that refusing to do this would create, they would first go to one set of parents in the morning, three hours drive to get there, have a full Christmas meal with them. Then they would drive in the afternoon to the other set of parents and have a full Christmas meal with them. All the while worrying that, well, if I go to them first and them second, they're going to be offended. And if I go to them second and them first, they're going to be offended. And am I spending too much time with them and not enough time with them? It was so stressful. But yet year after year, they would continue to do it. And we would meet up with them the next day. And they always arrived home overtired and really resentful of their families. 
But they kept going around the loop. The following year would come and they would do it all over again. The second way we fake peace is to run away. This is not pulling aside for prayer and time to think about it. That's actually a great response to conflict. This is a running away so we don't have to deal with it. Now, I am not speaking here of situations where the conflict is putting your life or your well-being in danger. In those situations, you should always move to a place of safety. Running away, though, includes things like ending long-standing friendships without explanation, quitting a job without thinking through what the implications might be, or what about just disappearing from the church family rather than working through an issue with a brother or sister? Faking peace never solves the problem. It just kicks the conflict can down the road. But eventually we will catch up with the can or we'll find it's rolling back down the hill into our laps again. Often in a much worse state because we're now not just dealing with the conflict but also the sense of betrayal that desertion brings. Fleeing also leads to isolation, the hiding place for many addictive disorders. Conflict does not go away if we run away. It only festers and leads to much worse issues. Ignoring or fleeing conflict is never the way to bring real peace. It's just peace faking. Peace breaking is what we do when we're more interested in winning a conflict than preserving a relationship. It's when we attack our opponents to eliminate their opposition, regardless of the relational cost. Such attack responses are not just used by the strong and self-confident. Insecure people often use passive-aggressive behavior to achieve the same ends. You know, human beings are such masters at attack responses. We've developed so many ways to undermine and incapacitate our opponents. Sometimes this might include actual physical violence, but for most of us, we attack and intimidate others through the words we use when we gossip, slander, and misrepresent the truth. Maybe it's not a full-blown lie, just a twisting of the truth or a hint of a rumor. The Apostle James said, no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our words undermine our opponent's personhood and do untold damage to our relationships, which ultimately only damages us as well. We also use anger, probably the most effective tool to break peace. Anger, both violent or that insidious form of anger, the silent treatment. You know the one? I'm not going to say anything. But man, am I seething. I'm ignoring you now. I'm not, you know, you know that situation. That's so dangerous and so damaging. Anger is a powerful tool to control others. It's really effective in the short term because you can't be angry and wrong. Think about it. In a state of anger, your brain believes you have complete justification for your actions. And generally, it works. Angry people usually get the desired compliance from the ones they are angry with. 
But there is an enormous emotional price, which is why Paul challenges us so strongly in Ephesians 4.31 to get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. Faking and breaking peace only make matters worse. They destroy the very relationships we need to flourish and enjoy peace. And they only serve to give the devil a foothold in our lives. In my experience, most of the folk I've worked with over the years facing addictive disorders and destructive behaviors have used one or another of these unhopeful, unhelpful approaches to conflict. But God has called us to a completely different, much better way to be peacemakers. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is actually part of God's nature. God is described in Scripture as the God of peace. 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21 tells us that through Christ, he has reconciled us to himself and made peace with us. We've become members of his family. We're sons and daughters of God. So we share the family likeness. That's why Jesus calls us peacemakers. That's who he's made us to be. Peacemaking is not merely about the cessation of hostilities between men and women, between men and men, between families, even between nations. It's primarily about the cessation of hostilities between man and God. This is his peace that he has given to all who believe in him. This is real peace. He has shattered the chains. He's broken apart. He's made those that were separate one in him. His peace, his shalom, the deep holistic wholeness and health and well-being that God offers us in his kingdom. This is true human flourishing because this is how God intended us to be. So the first peace is not the peace between one another. It's the peace between us and God. He is our peace. And as this peace overflows from God into his children, it impacts and defines our relationships with one another. In Colossians 3.15, Paul compels us to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As members of one body, you were called to peace. We are called to peace. We are a reflection of the image of God of peace. Peacemaking is therefore not an optional extra. Paul encourages us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Literally, to let his peace be the judge in our lives. So making peace needs us to be prepared to subordinate the other things in our lives so that his peace, if you like, is the measuring line, is the center point for the decisions that we make. That means we subordinate things like our will, our status, and our natural desires to his peace. 
As counterintuitive as this might sound, it is only as we actively submit these things to the pursuit of his peace that we truly experience God's shalom. That's his intended state for each and every one of us, to be those that live in, enjoy, experience his peace. But this can be so difficult, especially when we're in the midst of conflict. Lisa Cahill, professor of Christian ethics at Boston College, put it this way. In the real world, peacemaking must usually proceed in circumstances where it is precisely justice, equal respect, and human rights that are sorely lacking or entirely absent. To act when oppressive power makes action risky or to take risks for those who have no power is a hallmark of God's in breaking rain. Taking the first step to break apart violent cycles and bring enemies to recognize God's, one another's humanity. Making peace in the real world is a hallmark of God's in breaking rain. When we make peace, we demonstrate the kingdom at work in our lives. And as I quoted N.T. Wright at the beginning of today's message, that's how God has chosen to change the world. In a prayer prayer vigil for peace in Syria, someone that I wouldn't normally quote from the platform here this morning, Pope Francis said this, In the silence of the cross, the uproar of weapons ceases, and the language of reconciliation, forgiveness, dialogue, and peace is spoken. Peace expresses itself only in peace, a peace which is not separate from the demands of justice, but which is fostered by self-sacrifice, clemency, mercy, and love. Forgiveness, dialogue, reconciliation, these are the words of peace. Pope Francis recognized that peace is only found in the cross, but this peace demands a response our personal sacrifice through acts of forgiveness, mercy, love, and reconciliation. In other words, the acts of peacemakers. Now, we've talked about what making peace isn't. So what does making peace actually look like? What do we do to resolve conflict and make peace in our relationships, in our community, in our workplace, and in our world? So I want to get really practical now. Um, Sand lays out four helpful steps that we can take to resolve conflict in the way that God intended. He came up with four G's, but I've come up with four R's, okay? So I want to sort of make it fit our context a little, a little differently. And to do them justice, we could probably spend a week on each of them. Um, so I would recommend, get hold of his book if you want to get into them in more detail. It's called The Peacemaker. Firstly, revere God. As we've already discussed, real peace only flows from one place, the God of peace himself. We can only make peace with others if we are first at peace with God, because he is our peace. That means purposefully letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart. It's lifting up his name. It's glorifying him. It's revering him. It's choosing to trust and follow Jesus like we honored the seniors at the beginning this morning. 
Yeah, recognizing that it's lifting up the name of Jesus. He is our peace. He is faithful to us. As I choose to trust and follow him, I will find that he is faithful to me. That means choosing not to rely on my own ideas and abilities as I respond to those that are opposing me. But this is tough. Submitting our rights, our status, and our natural desires to God's will is hard. But it's not about becoming a doormat to be trodden on and abused. Rather, it is deliberately choosing to honor God, following his way, knowing that as we do, he is trustworthy to bring all things together for our good. See, when we do this, we allow God to speak into the root of the conflict, helping us to see it from his perspective rather from our own more limited viewpoint. It opens a door to solutions that we would never have considered if we were just doing this on our own. Secondly, get the log out of your own eye before you respond to your oppressor. That means taking responsibility for our part in the conflict. It means asking the question, how can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict. And that involves two steps. Firstly, we need to look at where we might be at fault, whether that's in attitude or behavior. Were we too easily offended by the other person? Did we mind read their intent and make something of it that wasn't really there? How did our behavior contribute to the issue? Now, we might come to the conclusion that we realize the other person created the problem, but it was because of our attitude or our behavior. In this case, the right thing to do is to repent, overlook the offense, and restore the relationship. But if there is more to it, the second thing we need to do is to take time and really understand what is the nature of this issue. Is it about material things or a personal offense? Is it some combination of the two of those things? And the key here is to understanding what the actual issue is rather than piling on all the other things we don't like about the person at the same time, dragging up past hurts and adding other things into the equation because all that happens then is that just becomes ammunition in the conflict rather than a way forward towards peace and reconciliation. Once we genuinely know what the actual issue is, we're in a much better place to determine what we need to do to resolve it. Which brings me to the third point, restore gently. Having examined and understood the true nature of the issue, if we recognize that, yeah, this does not, this can't be overlooked or forgiven without consequence, I really need to address it with the other person. Matthew 18, verse 15, explains the approach at this point we should take. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, most people, a lot of people, read this passage as the opportunity to expose your brother's fault. This is the attack weapon. Well, actually, Matthew placed this passage right between two very interesting parables. First, 
the one of the shepherd and the wandering sheep and how the shepherd goes after the sheep to restore the sheep to the fold. And secondly, the unmerciful servant, where he talks about forgiveness. The theme here is restoration, not condemnation. And there's a clue in the second half of the verse. Our goal in this is to gain our brother or to win him over, as the NIV puts it. We also don't parade the offense beyond the parties affected by it. If it's between you and one other, then unless they fail to respond and be restored, that's as far as it should go. As we explain our understanding for the issue and take responsibility for our part in it, our purpose is gentle restoration. As I own my part, I want to serve the other person by helping them to take responsibility for their contribution to the conflict. Paul challenged the Galatians. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. The key here is the message of the gospel. Remembering God's mercy to us So we approach others in a spirit of love, not condemnation. Listening to them, really hearing their perspective with the goal of restoration rather than judgment. Sand says that peacemakers breathe grace into conflict by drawing on Jesus' goodness and power, bringing his love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to bear, rather than using guilt and shame to force others to change. We keep the offense within the boundaries it was committed in, and while they are clear about the offense, the goal is always restoration. And finally, reconciliation. We are a forgiven people. We are those whose sins are not being held against us. When God looks at us, he sees the reflection of his righteous son. We did nothing to earn this. It was entirely because of what Christ did for us. As PJ said a few weeks ago, and Ian repeated, I'm going to repeat again this morning. We have been forgiven a huge debt. So anything that is done to us is going to be much, much smaller. As the most forgiven people in the world, we should expect to be the most grateful, forgiving people. There's a relationship between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. It's part of the core gospel message. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the world to him. And a huge part of reconciliation is forgiveness. Paul makes it really clear in Colossians 3.13. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I'd like to close this morning with some thoughts about forgiveness. First, forgiveness is hard. It is much easier in the short term to hold on to grudges and unforgiveness, but doing so never works. It just ends up hurting us more than the ones we don't forgive. Second, we can't forgive alone. 
It's impossible to truly forgive in our own strength. Only God can deal with the hurt and pain in our own lives from whatever injustice caused the conflict. But the good news is that if we let him, he will work in our hearts to heal us so we can forgive. Thirdly, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. Forgiveness doesn't come from changed feelings. It's the other way around. Changed feelings come from forgiveness. Fourthly, forgiveness is a decision we make. First to call on God to work in our hearts and then give us the grace to forgive. Then to decide not to dwell on the injury that has been done to us. It's a decision not to keep record of wrongs and keep bringing them up. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgetting is passive, hoping hurts will fade through time. Forgiving is active and conscious. It's a decision to lay down the hurt and not return to it again. Sickly, forgiveness is not excusing. Excusing is actually denying the offense, like saying, well, what you did wasn't actually wrong. Forgiveness is the exact opposite of this. The very fact that forgiveness is needed indicates that something wrong was done. Forgiveness says, we both know that what you did was wrong. But since God has forgiven me, I forgive you and I'm not going to hold this wrong against you. And finally, forgiveness doesn't automatically release the wrong holder from the consequence of sin. It may be appropriate to show mercy and to relieve the person of some of the consequences if you can, but you may not be able to. And sometimes it's actually more loving to let the person face the consequences of what they did. Coming to terms with being a peacemaker has been a personal battle and challenge for me. Um, I have to admit that was, as a young child, that was not how I felt about those that murdered my cousins. But it has only been as I've reached out to God and found what he has done for me and in me and through me, that over the years, for my whole family, we were able to find his forgiveness for those that did this and become part of God's plan for how he seeks to bring peace through himself. Blessed are the peacemakers, for we shall be called the children of God. Making peace is not for the faint of heart. It's for those who have been transformed by Christ himself. It's for the sons and daughters of God who have received and enjoy his peace. In other words, it's for us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you took the initiative to make peace with us through the cross. Help us, Lord, to live in the good of that peace. Lord, in your shalom, in the flourishing of life that you have intended for us. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us sons and daughters. We are your image bearers. We are peacemakers. So help us, Lord, to live in the good of all that you have made us to be. Forgive us, Lord, when we settle for peace-faking or peace-breaking. But help us to be those that actively make peace rather than settling for faking it or breaking it. Teach us, Lord, 
to be makers of peace in the way Jesus intended. Help us, God, and we just thank you for everything that you have done for us, Lord. You call us your children, your peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen.